1: LinkedIn, the place to be, to be.
2: Hi, everyone. I'm Katie Couric. And I'm Bozema St. John. And this is
3: Back to Biz
2: with Katie and Bose.
3: Bose, this week, we have a bit of a departure. You know, when you and I decided we wanted to do this podcast together, we were really talking about getting back to biz or how businesses would change in light of the pandemic. But of course, Everything has changed because of this huge cultural moment we're witnessing with Black Lives Matter.
2: Yes, that's right, Katie. I mean, right now we're finding that there are so many narratives being told, not just about the pandemic, but you're right about Black Lives Matter and about so many things that are concerning us in our society. And so really interesting to talk to someone who is at the center of creating narratives and stories that we're all paying attention
3: to. Absolutely. And Judd Apatow is just that, a writer, producer, director. He's got a new movie out called The King of Staten Island, starring Pete Davidson. It's really semi-autobiographical because it's about Pete's own challenges and journey of losing his father. His mom is played by Marissa Tomei, and his little sister is actually played by Judd's daughter, Maud.
2: Right. Except even the little sister is leaving the nest. She's headed off to college, and she's leaving her 20-something-year-old brother behind.
1: You gonna be okay without me here?
2: You don't think I could survive here without you?
1: Okay, just don't be a dick, okay? Like, be nice to mom, okay? Don't give her a hard time. She deserves a break.
2: I always give her a break. When's When am I gonna get my break? Like...
1: What are you talking about? All anyone ever does is worry about you. I was ignored my entire childhood because of you. Oh, yeah,
2: I forgot that my childhood was so dandy.
1: Okay, you don't get that crazy your whole life just because Dad died, okay? At least you got to know him.
2: Well, you're lucky you didn't get to know him, okay? Because that's why you're almost normal. If you got to know him, you would have known that he was, like, the fucking coolest guy ever. And that would have ruined the rest of your life.
1: Okay, like, but what are you going to do? Are you going to get a job, or are you going to leave the house?
2: I don't know. I'm going to open that tattoo restaurant. Well, I don't know if that tattoo restaurant is the real winner. We know about business and that's not it.
3: (laughs) I don't think so either.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Right. But there really is so much to unpack in this movie. I mean, it's also dealing with trauma and mental health in a way that feels really direct and refreshing.
3: I was really impressed with this movie, Bose, but of course it was done a while ago. We'll be talking to Judd about the future, not only of movie making, but movie going. But we wanted to check in first with the present. How he's doing months into this pandemic, hold up at home, one man among many women, his lovely wife, Leslie Mann, and his nearly grown daughters, Iris and Maud.
2: That might have been one of my favorite parts about the whole conversation, how he got the takeover. <laughs> so let's start there.
3: <laughs> how old are Maud and Iris now, Judd?
4: They are 22 and 17. And uh, that's not the age where you want to hang out with your parents a lot. You know, that's the moment when you leave and you're so happy to get away from your parents. So it's a very weird moment for us all to be stuck together because now we're not like a family. We are like weird roommates because when you spend this much time together and they're that old, I mean, Iris will be 18 in October. You can't really even give them advice or tell them what to do. You can't (laughs) ground them because we're all grounded together. (laughs) And I I, I keep telling people, We're five minutes from doing mushrooms together at this point.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Well, the family dynamics are very interesting during these strange times, but we're all lucky and we're all surviving. And uh, I keep thinking about how fortunate I am because there's so many people who are really, really hurting. So Judd, we have so much ground to cover. You've been so busy and we're excited to talk to you about your new movie. But 1st I just want to go back in time quickly because you were a bit of a late bloomer. You didn't direct your first movie until you were 35 years old because you had a hard time convincing studio executives that your ideas had potential. What was it about your form of comedy or your brand of comedy, Judd, that studio had studio execs saying thanks but no
4: thanks? I, it, it's hard to know. I think that you know, for like Freaks and Geeks, which was about high school kids, but it was, you know, it was the weirdos. It was the potheads and the geeks, and there wasn't a lot of those on television, especially in the lead roles back then. It used to be that everyone was gorgeous, and it was like a soap opera, and it was very, you know, Dawson's Creek style. And someone wrote an article, and they said, well, this is like independent film on television. And at that time... You know, before streaming, before cable went in that direction, we just seemed weird. I mean, Freaks and Geeks right now would totally fit in on television. It might even be corny compared to what everyone is watching at this point. But back then, it just seemed very odd to show the problems of teenagers where it didn't get solved, where it was just painful, and then sometimes things would go terribly wrong, and then the episode would end and you realize, oh, this is about that. It. Sometimes it's just hard and sometimes you lean on your friends and it doesn't work out and you don't get the girl and you don't get the good position in, in sports and you're kind of humiliated by everyone and you're just trying to hold it together to survive high school. And so I think some of the ideas I liked, they, maybe they were they were so truthful that the, the culture wasn't doing a lot of that at the time. But then suddenly with everything that HBO was doing and... Uh, you know, whatever, all the, all, all the shows, what, what The Sopranos did and Lena Dunham did, it, it, the culture changed.
2: You have a new movie, The King yes. of Staten Island, and it had to be released on demand instead of in theaters for obvious reasons, as we've been discussing. Uh, but you also said that you feel this movie somehow was destined to be seen right now. Why? Why is that? Why does it need to be seen right now?
4: Uh, I mean, the movie is about... Uh, you know, a family struggle to get over uh, the death of the father who was a firefighter. And in real life, Pete Davidson's father lost his life in 9-11. In the movie, it's, you know, it's a fabricated situation, but it's about a family who's frozen in their grief. They haven't really moved forward the way they should in a healthy way. And only when Pete's character's mother starts dating another fireman, played by Bill Burr, mom's played by marissa tomei does it force them to confront everything that has held them back all the trauma that's uh, prevented them from moving forward and i i felt like the movie is about sudden loss it's about grief it's about the ways it can impede our lives and it's also about firefighters and heroes and nurses and first responders so when i was asked you know would you put it out on video on demand now versus releasing it in a year, I thought, well, this is kind of the subject that we're all dealing with. How do we deal with sudden change and loss and grief? And how do people come together and help each other and heal? So maybe it's supposed to come out right now. It, it felt weird to hold on to it, to say, let's just wait a year so it can be in theaters. Like. Why do I need it in theaters? Is that an ego trip for me? Is it because I need the experience of the, of the audience? Or did I make the movie to make people happy, to help them go through something emotionally that I think might be helpful? And then I thought maybe it's supposed to come out now. Maybe that's what it was destined to do.
2: Yeah, but you're right. I feel like movies content in general is sort of a therapy, right? this probably brought up a lot of difficult, unresolved issues for Pete. Uh, Did you find that? Did did it bring up anything even for yourself?
4: Uh, It it definitely did for for all of us. In terms of Pete, we sat around for years talking nonstop about how it felt to to lose a parent. And to lose a parent at seven, when you don't even really understand what's going on. And then there's this added dimension, which is, your father dies in 9-11 and the entire world is talking about 9-11 for the rest of your life. It doesn't really go away. And so I would, what I would say to Pete is, you know, my mother died of cancer in 2008 and it was very traumatic and how it happened. was very traumatic, but no one talks about it. So I can go years and no one will mention my mother other than my sister. And and so, it, in some ways, it gives me some separation. It allows me to heal. It allows me to develop, you know, this life after losing her. For him, people talk to him about it every day of his life, multiple times a day. And it's connected to their grief and their loss. And so, in a way, he's he's in a Groundhog Day loop about it. And he has his own private grief. He just misses his dad. I mean, at the core of it, he just misses his dad and he—, and he Missed out on a relationship that he he really grieves for. I
2: know we don't really talk about it much, but I uh, I, I missed it. I'm sorry that I've been so difficult to deal with. I'll, I'll try and get it together. I'm just hard. I think it will always be
4: hard. I mean, I talked a lot with Pete about how when he was a kid, he was having a lot of mental health struggles, and he used to listen to Kid Cudi, and Kid Cudi had all this amazing music about his anxiety and depression. And Pete said, that really got me through it. And in the last few years, a lot of what we've been working on is content about mental health. And Pete wanted to make a movie that was about his story, so that if you were home depressed or suicidal or had anxiety, you might watch this movie and relate to Pete and and see some hope in how he got better.
2: Well, I think it's just so remarkable that um, we can use art in this way to find healing you know, for a a number of different things that happen in our lives. But I also think it's remarkable that you're able to sort of nurture that kind of storytelling, you know, and with talent that sometimes maybe would get lost otherwise. Um, And we know that you certainly mentored a lot of young talent and provided vehicles for people like Amy Schumer and Kristen Wiig and Seth Rogen What is it that you see in talent like that, you know, in their in their own storytelling or how to nurture that type of vulnerability?
4: I mean, I think that. Clearly, through Gary Shandling, who I worked for, The Larry Sanders Show, I learned a lot about mining your life for your art, and I think as a fan of music, I always was drawn to people who would tell stories that were clearly from their lives. It could be James Taylor, it could be the Beatles. You'd love those songs that you knew were real. I think as a kid, that was very important to me. And then I think Richard Pryor in a way taught me, oh, you would just work it out on stage. Like he just, to- he told the stories of his life. Here's the things I've done. Here's the thing I've- things I've done, which are terrible. Here's the mistakes I've made. Here's what I've learned. And uh, there were a lot of artists like that, Nirvana, just just all these people where you thought, oh, they're not kidding. They're really showing you the raw, real stuff. And I learned with Gary that you could take your life as the raw materials for storytelling and blur the line. Some of it's totally made up. Some of it is actually very close to the truth. And a, a writer's room at a TV show, everyone tells their stories. And then that led to me writing Knocked Up and 40 Old Virgin and um, uh, 40 Old Virgin with Steve and This is 40. And then I started trying to mine my stuff, which is always a combination of made up and and true things that you're thinking about. And then when I met Pete, I mean, that was as close to the bone as you can get. But he was as brave as anyone I've ever met in terms of I'm willing to go all the way, Judd. There's no aspect of this that I'm gonna hold back. Most people hold back something. Like, no, I can't go that far. That's too dark or that, that'll make me look weird. And Pete's like, let's just show all of it.
3: When we come back, Judd Apatow on how to make Hollywood a more diverse, welcoming place for all storytellers.
1: LinkedIn, the place to be, to be.
2: You're listening to Back to Biz with Katie and Bose, And we're talking with Judd Apatow, who is, I'm sure you're aware, a comedy powerhouse in Hollywood. But what about the responsibility that comes with that power? Here we are in a moment of national reckoning on race. So we wanted to explore what leaders like Judd can do to be the change that we want Hollywood to be. And it's interesting because Judd has actually faced criticism about the lack of diversity in his own work. So we started there, asking him where his head was at with all of this and what he can do to better elevate Black stories.
4: You know, yeah, and it's an ever-evolving thing. You know, for me, for instance, with Freaks and Geeks, when I went to high school, there was one Black person in 13 years of high school on Long Island where I grew up. So if I did a high school show and I said, well, let's make that 30%, 40%, you can do that. And I think in, in this era, you would do that. But at the time, we just wrote about what our high schools looked like. And, and that was not that. Uh, and maybe that was completely wrong at the time. But, you know, we came from places that were not diverse. Then when I worked with Lena Dunham on girls, at the time, there weren't shows with female showrunners who were the lead and the producer and the director. And that became something that I think really was a game changer for women running their shows. And it led to shows like Fleabag and all these other programs where women could create a show for themselves and star in it and direct it and produce it. And then some people were like, well, that should be more diverse. And you're like, OK, I I, I can see that. We need to keep broadening it. We're all figuring out like, well, what is truthful? How would you do it? And what I feel like the the solution to it is, is like what we did with the big sick, which is I met Kamel Nanjiani and Emily Gordon, and they wanted to write this story about how they met. And a lot of it was about, you know, a, a family of people from Pakistan and their experience in America and how their family worked. And I'll tell you, no one wanted to make it, you know, it doesn't matter how successful I've been. I couldn't sell that script. Uh, and Emily and, and Kamal had an amazing story, and they're brilliant, and Camille's an incredible actor, and he's on television. No one. So we just developed it for years for free. No one paid them. And then we got Film Nation to give us $5 million to make the movie, right? So we get $5 million to make the movie. Now, my, normally my movies cost about $30 million, so right there you could say there's almost a systemic racism in the budget, right? Because there's a belief that no one will want to see a kid from Pakistan as the lead in a comedy in America. So the movie gets made, Film Nation stands behind us and gives they give us the money, they're great, but none of the studios did. We show it at Sundance, it's a big hit, they sell it for a lot of money to Amazon and then Lionsgate distributes it. And now you've got the corporations behind it because we've proven it's good. And then it makes a ton of money, right? And it makes a ton of money and it basically becomes an example that the racism which makes it hard to make this movie is all bullshit. It's completely unfair and it's not even accurate to what the audience wants. The audience wanted that movie. There's no reason why it should have been a $5 million movie. It could have been a $30 million movie. And... And that's how I've learned to deal with this, which is, can I give opportunities to diverse people to tell their stories and maybe I could use my wisdom to help them? And, you know, that seems to be the best way forward. And the truth is, and you you always sound lame saying it, I can't tell you how many projects I've tried to make that didn't work where we couldn't get the script right. You know, I did a pilot with Kevin Hart in 2002. I was like the first guy to go, I think Kevin Hart's gonna be the biggest star in the world. And it took a, a long time after that for him to figure it out. But we were on that, on that train from day one. Like we, he was on, undeclared. He's in the 40 old Virgin. But I personally was never good enough to crack the script to help Ke- Kevin make it. You know, he did that in his own work that had nothing to do with me, and so we try, and sometimes we we just fail. Also,
2: I think the the brilliant thing um, that you just said was about even the example of your high school, right? And that if you were to write something about your high school experience, you would write about this big class with this one kid in it. Yes, and that is the that is the middle of the issue, right? It's not so much right. about having white people write black stories; it's about having black people write black stories, diversifying the storytelling. And so I think it's it's really quite important. And there's a responsibility of those who have the door open to find ways to extend it so that our storytelling can become more diverse
4: too. Oh, because absolutely. You're right. Yeah.
3: I also think it's about systemic racism. Like, why is Judd going to a school, or me for well, that matter, where there's yes. like a handful of black kids in the entire school? But I think that's a reflection of... You know, so many issues that mm-hmm. created this de facto segregation that Judd and I and Bose, you to a certain extent, too, even though you're a little younger than we are. And well, I'm the old one of the group. We're all about 10 years apart. Um, but I think it's it's a reflection of what was happening in society when Judd and I were growing up. But one thing I wanted to ask you, Judd, to to build on something you said why are these network executives or these studio executives so clueless? I think what's so interesting, you said they weren't reflecting what the audience wanted, right? You know, so they're saying no, and yet the audience is saying yes. So why is there such a disconnect? Is it because of the people who hold these positions of power to green light a project?
4: I think that there's a lot of theories that are just wrong. And it's not... It's, it's about every aspect of diversity. When we made Bridesmaids, I didn't think we were doing anything to help women. I mean, I grew up on Gilda Radner and Toadie Fields and Lucille Ball. There was never any part of me that thought that men were funnier than women. If anything, I, I think that my greatest heroes were women. So I just wanted to make a movie with Kristen Wiig. I didn't think that this was symbolic. I didn't think it was about helping women prove they could be, you know, the leads of movies or female-driven comedies. I just thought, Kristen Wiig's a genius. Let's make a movie with her. And then people started saying, you know, if the movie does well, maybe it'll help the studios realize they should make more movies with female comedic leads. I never thought of it as the test case. And then it turned out it did very well and it did lead to a, a bunch of other movies happening for different people. But... That was a theory. Like, the, the studios were not pursuing women to be the leads of comedies in the way they should have. It would happen here and there, but, you know, there'd be a Goldie Hawn movie, or, you know, every once in a while someone would get a shot, but it was still way less than men. And so, for me, I've just tried to be more aware of it. I like being in terrain where no one is. So... One of the reasons why I do certain things is just because, oh, this this community isn't getting a movie. It's fun to try to make a great one because it's not something that everyone has burnt out. But mm-hmm. I realize I just need partners. I need to partner up with with these people. And we have a lot of projects that we hope get done. We're doing a, a gay romantic comedy with Billy Eichner. And there hasn't been a big studio romantic comedy like that. It's It's... If it's been done, it's been done maybe once or twice ever. But he's got the big budget. He doesn't have the big sick budget. He's got the real budget from Universal Studios. And he wrote a hysterical script. And it's, and the truth is, it's kind of sad that it's a big deal to get it. it, it it's very sad. But that's what we're trying to do. We're, we're trying to tell great stories and partner up with people that we believe in. And hopefully that's a way we can make a big difference.
2: We're going to take a short break, but when we come back, Judd tells us how he thinks the pandemic will change the movie industry, perhaps for good.
3: You're listening to Back to Biz with Katie and Bose. And as we wrap up with Judd Apatow, we ask him about the future of movie making. And if he's going to be one of the people dipping his toe back into filming in the middle of a pandemic.
4: I know I'm very scared and I will be among the last people to say, let's go, because I I really would never want to put anyone in danger. I know when when this time passes and things are safe, everyone will run back to the movie theaters, just like they're trying to run back to everything now before they should but there's gonna be a very painful pause for the industry.
3: A lot of movie theaters are are closing though. I mean, some people are say, saying this is just accelerating a trend that we were already witnessing and, and that is kind of the demise of movie theaters, which would really make me sad. But do you think that movie watching is gonna come back?
4: I do, I do, because I, it, people might just miss it. It could come back bigger because people are tired of being in their homes binging and maybe it, it will make them appreciate the experience. I think it will always be there. The question is, what will we make for the theater and what will we make for home viewing? So everyone wants to see spectacle, right? We want to see explosions and superheroes in a movie theater. People aren't really going to the theater to see what used to be the mid priced drama. You, you don't see the studio spending... $35 million on a drama the way they used to make a Meryl Street movie. Uh, there's less of that happening. It's still happening, It's but it's kind of lower budgeted and going straight to streaming a fair amount of the time. And so I think what's going to change is what goes in the theater. And it's hard to know, you know, what to make of that because they're making some great movies that are meant for streaming. And maybe... An independent filmmaker that used to make a movie for two million dollars in a theater might get ten million dollars to make it for Netflix. And so there's all sorts of trade-offs.
2: yeah. Well, we're seeing, good Lord, we're seeing a lot of drama in our in our regular lives, right? Not even yes. in the theater. Um, and clearly, the election is looming. Lord, help mm-hmm. us all. Um, We just had this great conversation with Stacey Abrams last week, who is just so impressive. I I really admire her. Um, And I know that you share her concern about voter suppression in this country. What initially sparked your activism around this issue in particular?
4: I I mean, generally, my activism was set off by the fact that when Donald Trump started birtherism, I was just really disgusted. I wrote some jokes for the president for the correspondence dinner that made fun of Trump. Now I know that he's taken some flack lately, but no one is happier, no one is prouder to put this birth certificate matter to rest than the Donald. And that's because he can finally get back to focusing on the issues that matter, like Did we fake the moon landing? (laughs) What really happened in Roswell? And where are Biggie and Tupac? The reason why some of those jokes were harsh was because I was so annoyed and scared about his looming presence. And I even said to everybody, I think we should go harder at him. This is a real destructive force in our country. And my worst nightmares have come true about what could happen. And I think the only way he stays in office is through voter suppression. That's the only way he does it is by setting up rules and working with local, uh, you know, state governments to make it harder for people to vote in areas where he might not you know, be in favor. And. That is something that is going to be handled in the courts, obviously. I, I've always supported the ACLU because they do a lot of work fighting voter suppression. He's already saying that voting by mail will be filled with fraud when there is no fraud at all. There's no history of it.
3: Well, that's at what all. Stacey pointed out, Judge. Stacey pointed out that there is very little voter fraud, and that is so misleading, and that's what they always fall back on when it comes to making voting more accessible to more people.
4: Well, also, I don't know if people talk about it enough. When Donald Trump ran for president in 2016, he was saying it was rigged before he won. So this is his playbook, which is to set himself up to always win even when he loses. He says it's unfair before it happens. They should pull out all the clips of him saying this in 2016. And it's happening while he's colluding with Russia. It's happening while he's doing all sorts of things uh, which are unethical or illegal. So he sets himself up to have a grievance and to get people worked up. And then he's put in a lot of judges and he hopes that he could say the election's unfair. And then maybe the Supreme Court supports some bizarre ruling that keeps him in office. Or maybe there has to be a second election And, you know, it sounds crazy, but there are people on that court that are going to support anything that he says. And luckily, we saw what happened with DACA, uh, you know, this week. He's not winning everything at the Supreme Court, but he's certainly gambling on it with this election, I would assume.
3: I mean, you're in such a great position, Judd. You have so much influence and power in Hollywood. And I'm curious how you plan to use it or what you're what you're thinking about and looking at in terms of projects right now,
4: uh, in terms of you know my company where we do a lot of development, I I feel good because we were in this mindset for a while, you know we 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 have been looking to do diverse projects. We've been looking to do things which are more political. I feel like in all areas, it's not just. It, you know, it's diversity of thought as well. There's so many things that we don't talk about. And when we do talk about it and people feel seen and less alone, it really helps them in their lives and inspires them in so many ways. So I, I hope that that's what comes of this this time. And kindness, you know, we need more kindness. We need to lift each other up and take care of each other and make that our, our focus.
3: That was Judd Apatow, and his latest movie is The King of Staten Island, available on demand. That does it for this episode of Back to Biz with Katie and Bose. And you know what's crazy? We're nearly at the halfway mark of this series. So are you having fun doing this, Bose? No, I'm not. This is a <laughs> lot of pressure. <laughs> Well, you're doing a great job, and I love having you as my partner.
2: (laughs) Well, thank you, Katie. No, I really, I do love you, and I'm having a blast. And of course, I mean, we've been so inspired, and I've been so inspired by our guests, T.D. Jakes, Opal Tometi, Mary Barra, Stacey Abrams. I mean, come on, Stacey Abrams, all of these goals. I mean, it's just been awesome.
3: I know. We've been really lucky that we've gotten so many people to talk with us, especially during this critically important time, really in our nation's history. But we want to hear from you, dear listeners. So let us know what you think of our conversations and who you'd like us to speak with on one of these podcasts. You can leave a voicemail for Back to Biz at 844-479-7883. That's 844-479-7883. Or you can email us at info at Just put Back to Biz in the subject line.
2: And you can also go straight to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. Katie, you know what? We already have one review. Really? Oh, gosh. I hope
3: it's nice, Bose.
2: Uh, It's it's all right. It's good. It's good. Don't worry.
3: (laughs) In the meantime, keep up with the show on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.
2: And don't forget to follow us on social media, where you'll find clips of our favorite moments from the interviews. Until next time, I'm Bozema St. John. And I'm Katie Couric. And this is Back to Biz. With Katie and Boz. Thanks so much for listening, guys. Back to Biz with Katie and Boz is a production of iHeartRadio and Katie Couric Media. The executive producers are Katie Couric, Bozema St. John, and Courtney Litz. The supervising producer is Lauren Hanson. The associate producers are Derek Clements, Eliza Costas, and Emily Pinto. Editing by Derek Clements and Lauren Hansen. Mixing by Derek Clements. Special thanks to Adriana Fazio. For more information about today's episode, go to katiekirk.com. You can also follow Katie Kirk and Bozema St. John on Twitter and Instagram. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.